0: Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Estrin. I'm the CEO, President, and Founder of Resaene Associates, a full-service behavioral health consulting firm. I'm pleased to rather have the opportunity to talk about my experiences in mental health. Uh, I mean, grown up through the New York State Office of Mental Health system. But in in one sense, having spent so many years not only in OMH but in other positions, uh, I sort of feel like I'm the equivalent to Mel Brooks' 2,000-year-old man in mental health. (laughs) You know, sort of like thinking of uh, Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition, when they used enhanced interrogation techniques. I kept thinking, where was Dick Cheney and John Lew when we needed them? But I digress. Seriously, Doug, uh, I was very fortunate. I started in a time in the... uh, Late 60s, early 70s, when um, behavioral health, mental health in particular, was over, undergoing tremendous sea change from the large institutional systems, and with the use of uh, medications and the anti- antipsychotics, but also with some of the pioneers in uh, changing the system at that time. I think the change agents at that time, the late 60s, early 70s were well, the giants, and in New York it was guys like uh, er- Izzy Zwirling at uh, Bronx Psychiatric Center, Ed Hornig at uh, the, Fordham, the famed Fordham-Tremont Crisis Center, which was really the training ground for residents in community psychiatry. And, and you can note that community psychiatry today really doesn't have the power, much like psychotherapy, as the medication approach. But trust me, those were exciting days. And I can recall, you know, I was very lucky. I was, uh, I think, 21. Maybe I'll cheat a little on my age. And I was put in charge of the Lincoln unit at Bronx Psychiatric Center, covering uh, the South Bronx, which was the toughest unit at that time. I I was so grandiose, though, I said to whirling, I could reduce the census. And I guess my grandiosity and, and some of my uh, somewhat eccentric... Uh, Scary smart ideas were, because I was able to significantly reduce the census by, for example, using network therapy, um, taking patients in my car to do home visits, because at that time, as I recall, there were no outpatients, so prior to discharge, I would bring patients home to patients who had been discharged, we'd have group meetings there. You can't do that today because of liability issues, but that was the kind of thing I was allowed to do. I was also allowed to choose some of my staff and Zwirling gave me a great deal of latitude. I set up the unit almost based on the Fairweather model, where you could only come on to the unit with permission of the patients, including Zwirling. And we even organized the strike. I will never forget that. Of course, I had to let Zwirling know that the strike was coming and he had to accede to our demands. But the point was, it was the very initial elements uh, addressing patient empowerment and rehabilitation and recovery. Because I always believed from the beginning, state hospital units really should not be chronic care. The longer the patient was there, the more he became a chronic patient, because uh, there was a book I forget, uh, The Sharing of Power in a Psychiatric Hospital, which pointed out that the real issues there were the power that AIDS have. How did they have it? When you shut the TV off, when you turn it on, uh, when you go to breakfast, when you go to dinner, the regimentation forces you, in a sense, to adapt in a chronic manner. Patient autonomy was never rewarded. So I try to change this. I recall walking on a board once and saying to the aides, hey, the TV's up on the wall. Do you have it that way? They looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I want it down immediately. They said, they'll argue. I said, you never argue at home with your family over a TV channel? It's those kind of therapeutic interventions that really make a difference. And, uh, you know, I was quite fortunate. And then I went on to uh, Kingsborough Psychiatric Center, the late Mort Bollock, who was a brilliant guy. He ran uh, the division chiefs, of which I was one, almost like the famed Comstat of uh, Commissioner Broughton of the New York Police Department. He would gather us, have specific data sets, and ask us, how are you doing with this? What's your census? Who's open? Who's beyond your length of census day? How how is it being treated? Do you have to change the medication? Have you linked with your families? Uh, Have you made connections with the outpatient clinic? And he had a list of these questions. You were grilled on it because the impact was integration between in and outpatient. And that's a critical point. That was a major factor. Uh, So, the state hospitals then began to take on acute care, and they had integrated inpatient and outpatient units, and I was very fortunate. I ran Bushwick, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and uh, Bed-Stuy, and I could integrate in and outpatient unit. And In fact, one of the things I said to the inpatient staff is, hey, if you help me reduce the inpatient census, I'll transfer you to outpatient. It's much more flexible. You don't have to worry about 8 to 12, 4 to 12, 12 to 8, and it's an incentive to work with me to get patients out and link. And we set up mobile neighborhood care teams, which were teams linked to the community they were serving, which in the, you know, looking back on it, really was compatible staff with cultural values compatible to the target population. Uh, actually, Bushwick was uh, African American. Williamsburg was basically a Hispanic community. So it was amazing, and of course Bed is also the uh, African-American community. So we set up teams, neighborhood care teams that made rounds, got to know the, the elements in the community, the bodegas, the churches, the uh, people, the libraries that people had contact in, and we used this to reinforce our ability to link patients to normative opportunities in the community and to develop indigenous support systems. So that was the second phase of my learning in the career. And of course I parted and I, I, I want to take credit for it. I pushed heavily for home visits. Of course in those days we didn't worry about Medicare and reimbursement and we pushed and pushed and pushed. So at one point I think our unit even had something like 400 home visits a month. But it kept our census down. We had a truly acute care unit. So now I want to talk about the current situation. The other factor that really came in was when Congress passed the Medicaid Act. What this meant was that the local uh, acute care hospitals could set up their own psychiatric acute care units. What this did was divert admissions to the state hospital. And not only that, you could expand your mental health services for every dollar the county put in. You got $3 toward the uh, cost of the unit because the, uh, the state would contribute and the feds would contribute 50%. It was a great way to expand. But what invariably happens over expansion, the state budgets uh, become burdened. and What do they want to do? They want to cut Medicaid. So what is the traditional approach? Manage care. Take a portion of Medicaid dollars, give it to a vendor, have them manage the system. You get out of the uh, operational uh, management And you have the privilege of beating up the providers for not meeting their deliverables. What a better way to deal business. I say that kind of jokingly, but that's kind of what what goes on. You, You pass it on to the Department of Health. You let them be in charge. They download it to a managed care company who then has X amount of dollars and say, with this X amount of dollars, you're given a per member per month to deal with the patients. The key thing here that's emerged lately in New York's thing is that there is a focus on the need to provide integrated care. Why? Follow the money. The issue is that people with serious behavioral health problems, be it serious mental illness, uh, substance use disorders, repetitive substance use disorders, and chronic co-occurring medical conditions like obesity, high blood pressure, is hypertension, obesity, COPD, they invariably cost the most. Why? Because these patients are not fully integrated into the primary care system. So that brings up a fundamental problem that we face. How do we do coordinated care? That has got to be the thrust. How do you take the case management system and convert them into patient health navigators? So that they can take the person with serious mental illness and a chronic co-occurring medical condition and work with them as an advocate, as an ally, as a supporter, to move them into the medical sector. Why? Even from my own experience or your experience. When you go to a doctor, you get nervous. I have the white coat syndrome. My blood pressure shoots up to 150 as soon as I see a doctor in his office. I leave the office, I'm down to 120. So, the point being, If I'm nervous, can you imagine that someone that's struggling with mental illness and uh, addiction problems has in dealing with a doctor who at the same time may have his own prejudices and and discriminatory ideas about the patients, behavioral health patients that are coming in? My God, these are... The characters, they're criminals, oh I have to protect myself. I'm mentally ill, oh my, 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 they can act out at any point, I can't control it. So they're scared just as well and they are not trained in how to engage properly the patients who have an addiction problem or a mental illness. So if they can't engage and the patient doesn't understand his rights and his ability, they're not going to connect. So the connection to the primary care and the specialty medical care is basically broken from the onset. The impact patients wind up on inpatient medical services because of this lack of integrated coordinated care. So one of the major thrusts of SAE now is to develop workforce initiatives using health literacy and care coordination to train case managers to convert them into patient health navigators so they can more effectively move patients into and sustain their involvement in the medical care uh, sector of their uh, course of treatment. And at the same time, if you attach to the health literacy care coordination uh, model or protocol, what I call the Nespresso Pod initiative, wellness self-management, such as diabetes, uh, asthma, etc., you have a tool, a disease-specific tool, to keep patients in the community by focusing on their health literacy uh, enhancements. And by this, I mean, do they know how to talk to their doctor? Do they understand what their symptoms are? Do they understand uh, the symptoms of medication? How do you deal with this? What do you anticipate? How do you deal with the doctor feeling uncomfortable with you? How do you assert yourself when you're uncomfortable with the course of treatment? These are all built into our workforce development tool. And there's another issue here. What this does, it moves the locus of treatment from the high-level inpatient, medical or psychiatric, into ongoing community care through these preventive interventions like the health literacy with its Nespresso, Nespresso in quotes, uh, disease-specific protocol. Now, I want to add one other point. What's emerged is parity legislation for addiction and mental health treatment. This is important on several fronts. First, it's needed to ensure that patients who have behavioral health problems have the same access to care as those on the med MedServe side. SAE is, a fortune, is fortunate in that we, have, we are one of the first external com- parity compliance uh, administrators in the country, and we're working uh, with a health plan to ensure that they meet parity. And this is a problem because What we're trying to do here is change business and clinical practice to ensure that people with serious behavioral health problems have adequate access and equal access to treatment. And one final point, the total outgrowth of all this is on some way the restructuring toward Medicaid managed care, although it's really driven by the fact that the state government has to reduce its budget really is precipitating a fundamental change in the course of treatment. Under the, the Medicaid, you could do unlimited amount of treatment, a patient could come in 10 times a week, 20 times a week, and get reimbursed, but there was no deliverables attached to this, none. Now, with value-based payments, you have a way, and, and per member per month allocation. you have a way of ascertaining value for the work that you're doing. And if we measure this correctly, if we use the correct empirically derived tools to measure these outcomes, we can make a change. So, and with that in mind, I mean this is you know kind of a cursory overview. I, I can say in concluding, you know, I've been fortunate to watch these seized changes from the uh, Inquisition. To uh, changing leadership in state hospitals, the change of the role of the state hospitals to the integrated uh, s- systems of care within state hospitals that move them from chronic care to acute care, to the development of different value-based approaches to care for the patient, which is dependent upon producing outcomes that improve the health, the quality of life, and consumer satisfaction.